Well, good morning and greetings in Jesus' name this morning. It's a privilege and a blessing for us to be here with you this morning. And this morning I feel a little bit like David. I have this newfangled sound equipment that I've been battling with up front here. I think I'll get it figured out after a bit. And I might just, at some point, sound men just rip it off and go back to the old trusty uh, slingshot here if we need to do that. But I think, uh, I think we can work through that. At least it gives me time to, or space to move around here a bit, which I don't have at our home congregation because I'm tied to the mic a bit more. We look forward to being here uh, with you, uh, my wife and I, and uh, I'm guessing probably most of you know who we are, who I am, at least who my family is. My Aunt Alta is back there, so that gives you a little bit of context if you don't know, and I think that's probably about enough for the Franschaft for today related to a number of you. Uh, here this morning. As far as my wife's family, she's from Abbeville, South Carolina. Um, and I just want to say thank you to those of you youth and others who were down there, I think within the last couple of weeks. They really enjoyed your program. You're at my in-laws church. They really enjoyed that and got to know some of you. And I just want to say thank you from them. They really talked that up. I know it takes a lot of work a lot of effort, um, so thank you for the work that you put into that. We have some of our children here with us today, our two boys, Kendrick is 10, DeAndre is 8, they are at our, our church this morning, their cousins are here from New York City and they wanted to be there uh, this morning, and we do have our two girls here with us, Marissa is 6 and Haley is 3, and we have more, one more coming, one more girl coming here any week, and uh, so we're looking forward to that and the changes that that will bring. So this morning, the message is, where is my passion, or what is my passion? That's the title of my assigned topic that I've been given for this morning. Additional questions that we could ask are, what am I passionate about? What should I be passionate about, and why? How should it affect my life? And as people made in God's image, we find it natural to be passionate about something. Maybe it's an organization. Maybe it's a business, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's a hobby, a job, and the list could go on and on and on. I believe we all understand that passions and energies can be severely misguided in the wrong direction, focusing on things that are sinful and things that take our eyes off of Christ. But I believe that we kind of generally know what those sinful things are, things like drugs, smoking, sexual addictions, accumulating excessive wealth, Abusive relationships, those are all examples of passions that are pointed in the wrong direction that are sinful. In addition, there are passions like a hobby, a job, entertainment, or even a close relationship that may distract from our relationship with Christ. But this morning, I'm not planning to speak about sinful passions or try to figure out where the line is between you know, a passion that's aimed in the right direction, one that's a little bit misguided, or how... how how much time can you spend with something before it's a misguided passion or those kinds of things? I'm not planning to talk about this morning. Rather, what I'd like you to do this morning is reevaluate, and I'm sure you've done this before and you probably do this regularly, but this is another opportunity to reevaluate why you do what you do, where your passions lie, what do you get excited about, and why. Do you get excited about it? Not necessarily reevaluating what you do, but why you do 
what you do. Because what you do might look great. What you are doing might look great. The organizations that you're involved in might look great. But that doesn't mean that your passions are aimed properly, that you are aimed in the right direction. So children, this morning, I want you to think about why you do what you do in your direction in life. Young children, I want you to listen for a moment. You might think, as a six-year-old, or as an eight-year-old, or as a 10-year-old, or as a 12-year-old, well, 12-year-olds aren't young children anymore, I'll cut it off maybe at around 10, 10 and under, you might think that what you do now doesn't really matter. You might think that you can not listen to your parents and it doesn't really matter. You might think that you don't have to listen to your school teachers and it doesn't really matter. You might think that you can read and look at and do and say what you want and it doesn't really matter. But that's not true. It does matter. Because right now you are setting your course and your direction in life. So children, I want you to think about that. Youth, you're probably trying to balance youth group, work, missions and VS opportunities, school, homework, assignments, Bible school opportunities like CBS. Maybe, even, maybe you're even cultivating a special relationship. And I want you, youth, this morning to take a moment, to take a deep breath, and to reevaluate the direction that you're going and why you're going there. Young families and middle-aged, you're probably in the thick of raising children, starting to care for your parents, running a business, or maybe being a key employee in a business, greater responsibilities at church and at school, being involved in organizations or missions, keeping up with all the appointments, the dentists, the doctors, the piano lessons, school events, and on and on and on the list goes. And so parents, middle-aged, parents or single, young and middle-aged, I want you to take a moment and evaluate the direction that you're going, where you're headed in the rat race that we call life. And elderly people, I want you to think about this as well, because you're facing a time where there's probably less energy, less vigor. Your health may be declining, and you are unable to do what you used to do. I want you to reevaluate this morning where you're headed and where you're going. You know, I think elderly people tend to have a little bit more focus on the next life and what is beyond than the rest of us. And so remind us, remind us, those of you that are elderly, remind us not to get off of that. Remind us to, to focus on what's coming ahead. I mentioned the rat race of life, and I want to just touch on that briefly. Because life is supposed to be a race. Did you know that? It's supposed to be difficult. It's supposed to be hard. We're supposed to strain. It's not necessarily designed to be easy. And sometimes I think we talk about that race as if we despise it. We want to get away from it. And I understand what we're talking about. You know, you can get overly busy. You can be doing too much, be involved in too much. But let's not be involved in too little either, for that matter. Let's seek proper balance. 
So this morning, I don't need to tell you as faithful Lancaster County people to work harder or faster or smarter. Rather, what we're going to look at this morning is three examples in Scripture of men who had misguided passions, and then one, who I believe, one example of a man whose passions, I believe, were properly focused and see if there's some lessons for us today. And I want, what I want you to think about this morning is that even greater then the sting of failure would be the sting of being passionate about or successful at something that doesn't matter. Even greater than the sting of failure would be to be passionate about or successful at something that doesn't matter. Take a moment to think about that. Were you ever successful at something that doesn't really matter? Think about that. The first example I want to look at this morning is of Solomon. I want you to turn with me to 1 Chronicles 29. We're going to jump around here a bit. It's a big story. There's a lot of scripture around this story. So we're going to move around just a bit. 1 Chronicles chapter 29. We'll look, start scanning around the end of the chapter. Uh, maybe starting around verse 20. I want you to just kind of scan down through there and refresh your memory on what's going on here. Solomon was confirmed as king. All the the leaders of Israel submitted to him. And then in verse 25, it says this, And the Lord magnified Solomon exceedingly in the sight of all Israel and bestowed upon him such royal majesty as had not been on any king before him in Israel. Wow. The Lord magnified Solomon exceedingly in the sight of all Israel and bestowed upon him such royal majesty as had not been on any king before him in Israel. And then beginning in Second Chronicles, in the first couple of chapters there, we see, and again, you can scan down through there and refresh your memory, we can see that Solomon offers a thousand burnt offerings and God appears unto Solomon at night. He gave Solomon the choice to pick one thing that God would give him. And Solomon asked for wisdom and knowledge to lead and to govern the people. And God said, God commended Solomon's choice of his request and said he would give Solomon wisdom as well as riches and wealth and honor. And then in 2 Chronicles chapter 2 through chapter 5, you can kind of look at some of your headings there in the Bible and refresh your memory. Solomon builds the temple and brings the Ark of the Covenant into it. And then in chapter 6, we see Solomon's beautiful prayer of dedication. And in chapter 7, fire comes down from heaven, consumes the sacrifice, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. We could look there at the first couple of verses of chapter 7 to see that. And all the people saw this and bowed down and worshipped. What a beautiful time. The temple was built. There was a good king in place who cared about God. The people could commune with God right there in their midst. God could finally do what he had been wanting to do since creation, and that is dwell among his people, come and be with them, Spend time with them, interact with them, and have a people, have a people that would follow him and that would show all the rest of the world what God is like. And people came from far and wide. The Queen Queen of Sheba came to see Solomon, and it says she was impressed with how Solomon's people, how they lived, how well-fed they were, how they interacted. And she asked lots of questions about Solomon and about his God. And so finally, we're at a point in the history of man. God can dwell among man 
and all the nations around can see what God is like. What a beautiful time. In the end of chapter 7, God appears to Solomon again, acknowledges his prayer, and agrees to do what Solomon asks. And then we get the beautiful words repeated so often in chapter 7, verse 14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. So God promises to be faithful. He promises that if Solomon is faithful to him, God will be faithful to them and their descendants and will always have one of their descendants on the throne. God also declares the opposite, that if Solomon forsakes God, God will forsake the people as well. And so Solomon has the world by the tail, you might say. Things are going well in Israel. He has the support of the leaders and all the people. He has the support of God himself. A temple has been built to God And the Ark of the Covenant is there so that God will always be there and dwell with his people. God has accepted the sacrifice and the prayer of Solomon. The land is at peace. Economic prosperity reigns. Gold and silver are as plentiful as stones. People come from far and wide to hear Solomon's wisdom and praise Solomon's God. But I want us to turn back to 1 Kings chapter 3 which runs simultaneously with these passages that we have been looking at. And I want us to look at something else that's been happening over this time. 1 Kings chapter 3 starts out this way, And Solomon made affinity, or Solomon made an alliance, or an agreement, or a friendship with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter, married Pharaoh's daughter, and brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house and the house of God and the wall of Jerusalem round about. Something's not right. Something's Something's not going right here. All this prosperity, all this success, something's not, something's not right here. This was against God's law for anyone in Israel. We could look back at Deuteronomy chapter 7 to marry someone from outside. And particularly for kings. Deuteronomy chapter 17 has laws for kings. Did you know that kings have laws? God has laws for kings. The laws were like this. Choose someone from among yourselves, a king from among, from among yourselves, not a foreigner. The king shall not accumulate many horses, shall not take many wives, shall not accumulate mass amounts of wealth. The king shall write a copy of the law for himself and shall read from that law all the days of his life. He shall not view himself higher than his fellow men, and he shall follow the law. And so the king is not above the law. But we see here that Solomon has already broken a number of these laws, the laws for kings. In the end of Second Chronicles chapter 1, we see that he amasses wealth, chariots, and horses, 
And later we see he amasses many wives as well. But Solomon has a kingdom to run, you see. The nation of Israel has been put in his hands for this time to take care of and protect. He needs to do what he needs to do to keep everyone safe, successful, and prosperous. So in 1 Kings chapter 3, when we see that Solomon makes an alliance with Pharaoh and marries his daughter, and we ask, why, Solomon, did you do that? Was this perhaps a situation similar to David and Bathsheba, where Solomon sees Pharaoh's daughter and wants her for his wife? I doubt it. Did Solomon have a hard time finding wives among the Israelites that pleased him? I don't think so. Solomon made a strategic alliance with Egypt, I believe, to protect the southwest border of the kingdom. You see, Egypt was the potential issue. Egypt was strong. They had a strong culture. They had an army. And if we can just protect the southwest border of our nation, we're good to go. We're stronger than the the Philistines and the Moabites and all those others. The Assyrians and the Babylonians had not yet come to their height of their power. So we need to secure the southwest border of the country. This marriage, I believe he reasoned, did that. More than easier than anything else. It wouldn't take any battles. It wouldn't take any fighting. Simple. Easy to do. Now what I find interesting in the same chapter in 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 3, it says that Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. But there was something that wasn't quite right here. And where did this lead? We could look back a little bit farther in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 8, where it talks about Solomon loved many foreign women, and he held fast to them in love. See, when he married Pharaoh's daughter, I don't think he had any idea where that would lead. I don't think he had any indication where he would end up. I think he expected he could handle it. He'd be fine. He could still worship his God. She could worship her God. But when he was old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and he built a high place for Chemosh and Molech and went after Ashtoreth. And we read that in kind of ho-hum. But these were the gods of the Canaanites. These were the God, these, this is the very reason why God brought the people of Israel and told them to get rid of the Canaanites completely because of their worship to these other gods and sacrifice of children. Israel was now starting to look more like the Canaanites that lived in the land before them than the children of God. So I want us to ponder on that a bit this morning. Solomon was a passionate man. And he was passionate about God. The Bible makes that very clear. He was passionate about the things that God was passionate about. I believe he wanted the best for the Israelite nation that God had placed in his care. But he depended on earthly wisdom and earthly practice to build up his organization. Was Solomon more passionate about his organization than he was about God himself? Because remember, greater than the sting of failure would be the sting of being passionate about or successful at something that doesn't matter. The second example that we're going to look at this morning is found in Matthew 26. We're going to look at Peter. 
And again, we're going to jump around to a few different passages here, so turn with me to Matthew 26. We're looking at verses 31 through 35, and again, you can scan down through there and see a little bit of what's going on here. Peter made some commitments here to Christ. Jesus was pointing out, stating that everyone's going to deny him. Peter made some commitments here. Even if everyone else is offended, I'm going to be there. And even if I need to die with you, I will not deny you. Now, I believe that Peter meant every word that he said. And I believe he intended to follow through. And yet, there were some things that Jesus had been saying lately that I'm sure made Peter just a bit uneasy. Things like how Jesus must suffer and be killed and raised on the third day. Things like not taking time to talk about who's next to him in his kingdom. I mean, that, that's critically important, is it not, when you're establishing a kingdom? Things like how everyone would, would deny him and how one of them would even betray him. But nonetheless, Peter was prepared. Luke 22 tells the account of Jesus telling his disciples to trade their garment or cloak for a sword. And in my imagination, now Jesus is speaking Peter's language. Trade your cloak for a sword. Now we're talking. Now we're getting ready. There's going to be a battle. This is going to be, this is going to be exciting. Then Jesus told them that they had two swords and that's enough. And when Jesus was arrested, I wonder what was going through Peter's mind. And I'm guessing that Peter purposed in his heart, I will have one of those swords. I will have one of those swords. He would prove to Jesus, to the disciples, and to the whole world for that matter, that he would not deny Christ, that he would die for Christ if needed, but you don't die without a sword in your hand. That he cared about and was worthy of Christ's kingdom and that he would do what it takes to get the job done. And then back in Matthew 26, verses 51 through 54, we see what happened. Jesus was betrayed, and Peter struck. And it was a valiant effort, likely aimed to take off the head, but it's unlikely that Peter really had any experience or practice with a sword. But that's okay, right? Because God can take our feeble attempts and make them useful in his kingdom, right? But then Jesus completely took him off his feet with some astonishing statements. Put the sword away. Those who use the sword will perish with it. Don't you understand that I have 12 legions of angels that I can call at any moment to do what you're trying to do with that sword? And how would the scriptures be fulfilled if we use force to protect me. And so Peter did the only thing, the only logical thing to do, and the only thing that we do when our sword is taken away from us, and that is flee. Yes, he followed afar off, but he denied Jesus three times, that thing he never dreamed that he would do, not even in the face of death. Because I believe that Peter imagined sticking up for Christ in a sword fight. That, I don't think that would have been a problem for him. I think that was pretty clear. But I don't think he ever imagined that sticking up with Christ could result in his own crucifixion. Peter loved Jesus, and I believe he desperately wanted to love what Jesus loved and the kingdom of God. 
Peter was a passionate man, not afraid to stand up for what he believed and not afraid to put his life on the line for it. He thought he was excited about Jesus' kingdom. But the method that he used was completely out of line with the direction that Jesus was going. Was Peter more passionate with his method, with his way of doing things, than he was about God? Because greater than the sting of failure would be the sting of being passionate about or successful at something that doesn't matter. Third example I want to look at is the example of Saul, and you can turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 has a number of things to say about Saul, and throughout the rest of the New Testament, there's a couple of different places where it talks about Saul and the type of man he was. He was a young man. He approved of the killing of Stephen. He was a Pharisee, which means that he knew the law inside and out. He knew the law inside and out. Now, not only was he a Pharisee, not only did he know the law inside and out, but he himself says that he was blameless or faultless before the law. Now, this is, not, this is no slouch. As a matter of fact, if you would have seen Saul, you would have probably looked up to him, most likely. Impressive that a man can know the law that well and follow it to that degree. He was also passionate about persecuting the church, making havoc of it, going from house to house and taking men and women to prison. Saul is from Tarsus, about 400 miles by land to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was about 100 miles by land to Damascus. And he went to the high priests in Jerusalem to get a letter that he could go to Damascus and take any Christians back to prison in Jerusalem. Now, what would possess a man to do that? What would possess a man to do that? Why would you go 100 miles by land in those days to drag people back to prison in Jerusalem? I don't think he was getting paid for this. Why would you do that? Saul was a passionate man. He was passionate about the law. But was Saul more passionate about the law than he was about God? What if he would have continued in that same direction for the rest of his life? Greater than the sting of failure would be the sting of being passionate about or successful at something that doesn't matter. And so we've looked at three examples. Was Solomon more passionate about his organization than he was about God? Was Peter more passionate about his method than he was about God? Was Saul more passionate about the law than he was about God? But I want to read about one more man today, and he's found in Hebrews chapter 11. And Norman read those verses for us. Let's turn there and look at Moses. Looking at verses 23 through 29, again, we see the man Moses. Not a perfect man by any stretch. Hebrews 11 makes him look pretty good. He was a murderer. And he wasn't even allowed to go into the the promised land because of his disobedience to God. But what's different about Moses? 
want you to look at one of these verses. Verse 26 says it this way. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded, get this, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures in Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. So when Moses compared Christ's way, God's way with the way of the world, he didn't do how we do sometimes. You know, we look at God's way and we're like, you know, if I follow God's way, I'm probably going to have a happy family and I'm going to be able to keep, keep my job. I'm going to have a good work ethic. It's going to result well. I look at the good things of God and I compare them to the negative things of the world like, like drug abuse and overdose and broken families and those kinds of things. And that's not what Moses did. He compared the attractive things of the world the wealth and the pleasure and the fun and the enjoyment. He compared the treasures of Egypt with the challenging things of following Christ, being laughed at, being ridiculed, being different than everybody else. And he said those hard things of Christ are of more value than all the fun things in Egypt. And I wonder sometimes if, that's, if I don't miss something there. When I compare the, yes, I want to compare the good things of God with the difficult things of following Satan. Because that's, that's, that's the reality. Following the world will end in difficulty. Following Christ will end ultimately in life. That's true. But I think sometimes we should sit down and compare the difficult things of Christ with the attractive things of the world and then make the choice. That's a difficult choice to make. Yes, we know where, the, where they end up, and that makes the choice easier. But it's not an easy choice. And so when Moses weighed those two things, it said he found of more value the disgrace for the sake of Christ than the treasures of Egypt. Something about that that's different than what Solomon valued. That's different than what Peter valued. That's different than what Saul valued. So what was different about Moses? There's something about his perspective that I believe is very powerful. Was he passionate about an organization, the Israelites? Sure. Was he passionate about a method, the methods that God had given him? Absolutely. Was he passionate about the law? Yes, he represents the law. The difference that I see in men like Moses, Abraham, and David is that the Bible says things like he was a friend of God or like we just talked about, he esteemed or he held of more value the difficult things of Christ than the fun things that the world has to offer. It seems to me that these men were friends of God first and then used that passion and that desire to support all their other activities that they were involved in. And I wanted to be clear this morning that organizations and methods and laws are important in moving the kingdom of God forward. God has used these three things 
continuously throughout history to move his agenda forward and will continue to do so. But I want to encourage us to not allow these things to take our passion away from Christ. It can be tempting for us as humans to place the main focus of what we're doing on the organization, on the methods, and on the laws, and in some cases emphasizing them over relationship with God. But I want us to shift our focus just a bit to the word why. The word why. In the business world today, understanding the why is kind of the latest and greatest buzzword, you might say. Any business knows what they do. Good businesses know how, they, how to do it well. The best businesses know why they do it. And thought is that if you teach people why, why they do what they do, they will be more motivated to improve the how and to complete the what that they do. And the idea of why is also very important in the kingdom of God. We all know this, but I often forget that the why is not building my organization, nor is it polishing my method, nor is it pushing forward my law. Because to the extent that an organization's why is connected to God's why is the extent to which that organization or method or law has any value at all. Because we all know sitting here today that Kaufman's Fruit Farm and Yoder Industries and Eagle Lawn Care and Country Lane Gazebos won't last forever. Someday there'll be no houses to sell, no driveways to pave, no computers to fix, no software to develop. Someday the equipment and the buildings and the wealth that these organizations represent will be an ash heap. And we know that Weavertown Church and school won't last forever. Someday the equipment and buildings and wealth that this organization represents will be an ash heap. Because remember, in the final analysis, greater than the sting of failure would be the sting of being passionate about or successful at something that doesn't matter. What if, like the rich fool in Luke 12, 18, we tear down our barns and we build bigger, better, stronger organizations and we forget about God so that we may be at ease and please ourselves? What if tonight our soul is required of us and our organization does not have any eternal value? What if, like Martha in the end of Luke 10, we are so focused on our method and getting things done, but we forget God and fail to focus on the most important things of all? And what if, like the Pharisees in Matthew 23, we are so focused on law, but we forget God and we strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. But I want to paint a different picture for us this morning. What if instead Solomon would have used God's ways to secure the southwest border of the kingdom of Israel rather than marrying a foreign woman? What if Peter would have used God's method in moving the kingdom of God forward? And we see later what happened when he did. And what if Saul would have recognized Jesus' superiority over law. And again, we see later what happened when he did. You have 
strong organizations, strong methods, and strong laws, you also have a strong opportunity to use what God has given you to impact your world in a powerful way. Because we find ourselves in a unique time in human history, and I know every generation says that, but I'm going to say it anyway. A time of unprecedented access to information, communication, wealth, and resources. And at the same time, the needs in the world around us are great. COVID, war, supply chain issues, and inflation threaten to upend the world as we know it. So where does Weavertown Church fit into this? My prayer, my goal, and my vision, and I hope it's your prayer, your goal, and your vision. I believe it's God's prayer and God's goal and God's vision, is that Weavertown Church and school and the businesses and organizations that are represented here could, in your little corner of the world and in the small part of the kingdom of God in which you find yourselves have an outsized positive influence in the world of today and the world of tomorrow. Because remember, while your organizations and your methods and your laws will not last forever, the impact of them can. Let's kneel for prayer. Father, thank you for this church, for this organization that has served you for many years. Thank you for the people that are here, that are serious about what is right, that are passionate about serving you. And I pray today, Father, in the coming weeks and months and years, that you would continue to work through them, that you would guide their energy and their passions and their desires to match your energy and your passions and your desires more closely all the time as time goes on. Thank you for our worship time here together, and I pray that you would continue to walk with us. In Jesus' name, amen.